welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast, where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole. Welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast. Today, I'm replaying a conversation that I had recently with Shashank Kalanithi, who has a fantastic channel on YouTube where he helps people break into the world of analytics. We had a fun discussion where I talk about my time at Google, starting storytelling with data, lessons learned from the many workshops the team and I have done all over the world, and most exciting for me, I share some details about my upcoming book, Storytelling with You. Hope you enjoy. Hey guys, Shashan Kalanithi here. Today we have a very special guest, Cole Nussbaumer Naflik, who wrote the wonderful book, Storytelling with Data. This was the first book I read when I broke into the data space. So for anyone that's not aware, I graduated with a degree in chemistry, came into my job with absolutely no experience. And my manager, he recommended that I read this book specifically because it has lessons that will last a lifetime in the field, no matter what technology you're using. And there's a couple of things I really love about it. One, it's short. Two, it's technology agnostic. And three, it uh, gets the crux of what the purpose of data is, which is to tell a story. The purpose of data is not to run a bunch of stats. It's not to run a bunch of ML algorithms. You're doing all of that to tell a story. So welcome, Cole, to the, the channel. Hi, Shashank. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, of course. So some of you may know if you uh, watch my live streams, I actually met Cole in 2019, I believe, at the uh, Tableau Hello. conference. So you all can see a photo over here, uh, either here or here. I keep forgetting which direction I need to point in. Doesn't that feel like forever ago? It's like another world. <laughs> Do you know if uh, conferences are coming back this year? They are actually, I think Tableau just announced their next conference. Yeah, slowly, nice. but surely. Are you uh, expecting to go um, there at all? I won't this time around. No, okay. we've, yeah, we've got busy schedules. So actually, okay, here's a completely random question I've always wanted to ask you. So, sure. you know, if you guys can see the book over here, right? So you'll see the, the basic color scheme is blue, light blue and uh, white. I associate those colors with Tableau as well. Is there any reason you picked these oh, colors? Oh, do you know, it's, it's actually interesting. So Tableau early on. So I actually, I went to, I think it was like, it was year one or year two of the Tableau conference when it was, it was actually in Seattle many, many years ago. I mean, this must've been, I don't know, I'm guessing like 2006-ish mm -hmm. where there was, because there was a point where they got Stephen Few involved in some of the design early on. And then they I, I don't know the full backstory, but at some point they split ways. But it was Fuse influence because there used to be a lot more colors in the Tableau uh, palette mm -hmm. that brought things very much to blue and orange and gray. For sure, that's some of the basis of my learnings as well. Fuse books, Tufty's books, these are the first that I encountered when I really started getting interested in this space and trying to understand what works and what doesn't mm -hmm. and why do some things work and not. And so the more you can push to the background, the greater flexibility you have on directing people where you want them to look, which we'll get into more, I'm sure. There's, there's quite a bit of magic in the book. Like you, you were talking about like, you know, making stuff appear in the, in the foreground and yes. the background and that kind of stuff. When I look at a corporate PowerPoint deck, I don't normally see that. So how yeah. did you come to that methodology of here are the basic steps you follow to make superior visualizations? Yeah, it's a great question. And so if I rewind and just think about my background and, and how I got to be interested in doing this stuff. So you, you mentioned your chemistry degree. My background is in mathematics and then I got an MBA. So data focused or numbers focused, I guess. And so I initially started out in the banking world, then went to Google to people analytics from there. But I was also always really interested in the creative part of numbers and data. And for me, that just started with the graphs, right? Because that's where you can make things visual and where you can do things like play with color and 3D effects and, and all sorts of stuff. So I, I learned from a lot of trial and error over time. And one of the things that I started to recognize was that when I spent more time on my graphs. And at first, a lot of this was just you know, trying to make them look pretty because I had mm -hmm. some uh, artistic license there that I didn't have when I was building statistical models, right? Or mm -hmm. some of the more technical stuff. And what I found though, is in doing that, people were spending more time with the graphs I made, which was this 
kind of crazy thing. The more time I spend on the graphs, the more time people are going to spend with it. So that was this self-reinforcing, hey, there's something really interesting here that I want to explore further. And it was actually when I was working at Google that I got the opportunity to pause and build a course on how to do this. And it was part of a internal training program initially that we were doing there where somebody came to me and said, hey, you like this data visualization stuff. Can you make a course and teach other people how to do it better? I was like, well, yeah, that would be amazing. And so I got to pause and that was when I encountered Tufty and Few and there wasn't much else out there at that point. This is circa, two, well, it would have been around the same time as I went to that first Tableau conference. So like 2007, 2008-ish. And I started to understand why some things work better than others and start to understand research behind it and not only understand to be able to apply, but to then to be able to turn that around and teach to someone else. And so the teaching started at Google, where originally the focus was really just on data visualization. How do you make a graph that makes sense, right? That someone else can look at and see what you want them to see. It was really popular and it was popular across all these different parts of the business, right? Marketing, sales, engineering, HR, like everybody wanted to learn this skill. But, whoa, that's really curious, right? People in all these different roles being increasingly asked to use data, right? And Google's a very data-driven company in, in everything. So it was a good right. place for sure to start in a role like this. And then it was actually through some fortuitous events that I got invited to speak at my first conference, which everything brings us back to Seattle because that was in Seattle as well. It was the annual grants managers conference. And so it pulled uh, people from all across the States and it was my first time on a stage. Didn't even occur to me to wear anything other than what I would normally wear to a day at Google. So I'm like in jeans, which was a little embarrassing looking back at it, but fine. And I gave a presentation. And after that, everybody started reaching out saying, we saw you do this. Or, you know, my, my wife came home and said, you did this. We need this in our company. We need this in our area. And so I started getting requests to do more of this. And was lucky at the time that I worked for a very supportive manager and team who said, yeah, do it. Use your own time, your own equipment, your own materials and stuff. But you're super interested in this area. Like, yeah. And so... I remember that first year when I was I was traveling, I was using like every day off I had and like taking red eyes. Anybody who wanted to hear me talk about this stuff, I was thrilled and I was there and I would make it work. And so I got a ton of practice through that. And so at one point I reached the point of realizing there is a need out here that extends far beyond Google and I can see it and I can connect with it. I'm gonna try to do this, right? I'm gonna leave the secure day job and take this show on the road and see what happens with it. And actually I left Google 10 years ago now, which is crazy to think nice. about. And started storytelling with data where we like to think of what we do as helping people make graphs that make sense, but then going beyond just how you visualize data and really thinking about how do you use data to help somebody understand something in a new light, right? How do you weave that into a compelling story that's going to drive someone to now want to act in a smarter way or make a better decision or have a more insightful discussion as a result of what you share? And right. so the lessons in the book really came out of doing these workshops at many different companies all over the world, all sorts of different industries, and recognizing that it's the same sort of things that pretty much everybody is struggling with. And mm. there are really practical things that anybody who's communicating with data specifically or who's communicating in general can do to be more effective when they do so. So that's been some of the core content of the first two. And there's a third one that I actually wrote final words to last night. So nice. coming out soon. Yeah. Can you give us a little bit of a teaser as to the basic concept of the book? Yeah, absolutely. The next book is called Storytelling with You, Plan, Create, and Deliver a Stellar Presentation. One of the things, as I think back over my own personal journey, as I look at the clients we've supported, as my team has grown, one of the things that I've noticed is... Early on, for any of those, the focus is really on how do you get the graphs? A lot of people come to us for data, where that's the core of what we're known for. But as you start to get the graphs, comes this recognition that there's this whole, whole other part of the puzzle when it comes to communicating with data or communicating with general, and that is the role that we 
as the communicators play in that. Because if we can, you know, the graph almost doesn't even need to be perfect if we can talk about it in a way that's going to engage people and make them want to listen and understand and do something. Whereas the reverse is not true, right? You can have the most beautiful data visualization in the world. And if you're meant to try to communicate that to someone and you're looking down and your voice is sort of you're shaking and you're not eloquent and you just, you do all that hard work, such a disservice. And mm -hmm. so the new book is really focused on you, right? As the communicator and how you can prepare yourself to be confident and be effective in that role. And so there's a lot about plan. So the three sections are plan, create, and deliver. Mm -hmm. And the planning section, it uh, goes into a lot of things that are touched on in the first two books. For example, the big idea or storyboarding. These were things that are kind of mentioned in passing in the first two books. There are entire chapters devoted to each of these concepts in the new book where we explore the topics deeply so that the folks reading can really get an understanding of both what the concepts are, but then how do you practically put them into application with your own project? And mm -hmm. why would you want to do that? What benefit do you get out of it? And so in the plan section, there's a chapter on audience, one on message, crafting your message really carefully, compiling the pieces. I talk through the storyboarding process and then forming the story. And then we move into the create section of the book, which is really about the materials that you put together to support what will eventually be your important meeting or mm -hmm. presentation. There's a general chapter on design and how to take the low-tech planning and put that into your tools. There's a section on building content that is words, another on content that is graphs, and then one focused on images. So at the end of that section, now you've put together your materials that are going to support you. And then the final section of the book is deliver. And that's all about how do you prepare yourself as the person who's going to be communicating this. So there's a chapter on practicing and how you can refine through practicing in various ways, which both helps you get really clear on your content and how to talk through it eloquently, but helps build confidence as well. Mm -hmm. There's another, also an entire chapter just devoted to how do you build your confidence? How can you play with your voice and your body when you're communicating in ways that are going to help make you more effective? Uh, there's a chapter solely focused on introducing yourself and how you might go about crafting your introduction and how you would weave that potentially into your overarching story. And then the final chapter is all about giving that stellar presentation. Nice, okay. So I kind of see it, um, the way I see your work kind of in the realm of like, you know, like the data space, right? So this channel's all about becoming an analyst and yeah. getting into the field, right? Is I see the concept of storytelling with data as very much, um, it's threaded through everything you do. Obviously, you know, like you have your analysis and everything, but what I've found uh, and what has tempted me, you know, is it's very tempting for data professionals, especially highly technical ones to be like, I want my, my analysis should speak for itself. You know, like I did all this analysis. I created this Jupyter notebook. Like, come on, just like, look at it. Like, this is where everything is. And I kind of see the importance of what you're doing as, how do you like get it across the finish line, right? Like exactly. if your analysis is at a hundred percent, but your presentation's like at 25%, then I mean, you've immediately, you know, what, what was the point of those weeks and weeks of work? So right. my question to you is, let's say I'm a you know highly technical person. I'm a data scientist. I have created this. I'm, I, I'm the one that created the recommender model for Netflix. Um, you know, like there, there was one <laughs> yes. person did that, you yeah. know, yeah. obviously. Um, so, you know, I, I think I'm a complete badass. How do you communicate to someone like me who may see my model as the, like it'll speak for itself, which is obviously not inherently true. How do you communicate to someone like that the importance of the concept that you talk about? Yeah, I mean, it's trying to pull people out of their own paradigms and situations, right? To get the, to them to see from the receiving side of that. Because it may be true. I mean, hard reality, I think, is probably the, mm -hmm. the way that I would try to communicate that or one method to do so, which is you can do all this fantastic work. But to your point, if you can't bring it across the finish line, you run a really high risk of all of that work getting 
ignored or misinterpreted or a host of other negative things that you don't mm -hmm. want to have happen. Whereas if you can speak eloquently about what you've done, if you can engage people, you can take things further. So I guess one way to turn it around is you don't have to develop these skills, right? You can be strong technically and, and have that work well mm. in many roles, but to advance further, right? If you have big dreams, focusing on yourself and how you communicate, even though that feels uncomfortable because it does feel uncomfortable, right? What, what I'm trying to counter is this feeling, this reaction that people sometimes express that goes something like, oh, well, that person's just a good public speaker, or mm. she's just a naturally good storyteller. This is fundamentally false. I mean, maybe some people are naturally grand communicators. I am not one of those people. This has happened over many years and much really careful, thoughtful practice. Like I'm an introvert, right? I'm one of those people with highly technical skills who would much rather be alone behind a laptop, like working on my thing. But if I did that, I wouldn't have been able to do any of this other stuff. So if you have a message that's important enough to share, if you have a project that you are proud of and want others to recognize or do something with, the more you can develop yourself to be able to convince other people of those things, the more effective you're going to be. Mm -hmm. And that's going to serve you in data roles. That's going to serve you in life in, in really important ways. So leading by example, inspiring. I mean, everybody has seen and can think of when they've seen fantastic speakers speak mm -hmm. or have been to a really great meeting. And everyone can certainly bring to mind counterexamples to that. The, the last presenter right. you saw who was awful and you had to like turn it off immediately or get distracted or the last meeting you sat in and an hour went by and you have no idea what just happened. Working on how we communicate and getting better as communicators is how we minimize <laughs> those negative uh, experiences for ourselves and for everybody else. Some of the lessons in the book, the big story specifically is one that I, I love telling people about, I found are useful outside of just a presentation context, like a formal presentation context. The example I love to give is that, so back when we were all in the office, right, is I would like to, I would actually have a big story for every uh, product I was working on. So I'm working on maybe two or three projects at a time at my company. Yeah. And by having that big story available, what happened was whenever a director or an EVP or something would just like walk by my desk or they were like uh, in the kitchen or something. It gave me a really easy three, three, 90 second to three minute overview of what I was doing. And I don't know how many people are like a big How I Met Your Mother fans, but there's a great scene where there's this guy, Barney, who works at a company and he's giving advice to his friend, Marshall. He says, you need to be a guy. Like how do, he's like, basically they, they're having this mass firing at his company. Right. And then Barney's like, you don't get fired if you're a guy as in, in the sense that like, a uh, food guy or like data guy mm. or like basically you need to be known for something. So not guy like the gendered word, but guy as in like, you know, a person. And so I found out that by doing that, by always having this like, story ready, uh, an executive who has a billion other things to worry about is like, oh yeah, Shashank's the data guy. He like gets the stuff done. Yeah. He's all like, he's always doing this stuff, you know? And I'm not, I wouldn't say it makes you like fire, uh, firing proof, but you seem a lot more necessary to the company. Well, and then like, when that executive needs something or has an interesting project, like if your name's top of mind, yeah. they will come to you. So you do that. I mean, that's one fantastic way to just build a reputation in a company, in an organization, because as you right. start becoming, you know, that guy, then it means other people may come to you to brainstorm or to get ideas. And then that's how you start to be able to share some of what you're doing more broadly. And that's how it started for me. I was the, uh, Tell stories with data gal that doesn't have the same <laughs> ring. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a gal definitely. Oh, there you go. Um, yeah. Um, and and you're, you're a Seattle native, correct? I am. Yeah. I grew up on the Kitsap Peninsula across the water from there. So, nice. so fond memories of the ferry. Yeah. Nice. I, I moved here like three months ago, so I, I barely know anything about the. Uh, oh, the you're city. new. Oh, you're going into the best part of town. Like all the cherry trees are probably blossoming right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's no better place on the planet than a sunny day in Seattle because it happens so infrequently that everybody's outside loving life. Well, and it was yeah. raining like crazy. And then now it's like super sunny. I'll show everyone a picture, uh, the picture I just took. Uh, you'll see it on the side over here. Um, 
uh, benefits of a YouTube video, right? You get, you can do all yeah. this stuff. <laughs> um, cool, cool. So one thing is, uh, so for anyone that's not aware, my uh, understanding of storytelling with data as like uh, a brand and like as a company, what you do is you guys host these uh, workshops. So uh, presumably you've gone to many different companies. You've seen yeah. probably a decent, I'm guessing you've seen anything. We've seen it all. <laughs> Like mid-size to fortune 50 i'm guessing right right yeah i mean even from tiny to massive yeah for sure so one question i have for you is that have you noticed any general patterns that seem to exist in a uh, let's call it three different categories mid-size so a company with uh, two billion in revenue something like that maybe a couple hundred to a couple thousand employees to fortune 50. No, no, I see no uh, appreciable difference in any way. Like if I'm imagining whatever you're going to plot on a scatter plot, mm -hmm. there is just going to be, there will be no discernible association <laughs> between those things. No, because a lot of it has to do with the relative maturity of the analytical function, right? Mm -hmm. Which varies not only company by company, but also just even group by group within an organization. So we'll have examples of that where we're going into a massive company and we might have multiple different clients from the same company who are at vastly different steps in mm -hmm. that journey, ranging from the, hey, we just figured out what data we can collect and we're mm -hmm. starting to look at it. We might have a lot of tables that we're using to do that currently. So with some people, we're helping them, all right, let's take your tables, let's visualize those. Let's see how much more insight you can both understand as you're analyzing it, but then especially as you can communicate now with others to, we've been using graphs for a really long time. We're actually designing them quite well. How do we take them to that next level? and really not only think about the graphs, but think about these other factors of how do we create a compelling story? Where does data come in? What role does it play? So it really runs the gamut. And yeah, I think it, it comes back mainly to where the specific team and function is on that analytical journey, because it's a process where everybody has to kind of start at the beginning and, and you go through these different stages. And so that's one of the things that's really cool for us is because we, so when we go and do workshops, uh, which is one of our main focuses work-wise for organizations, we solicit examples ahead of time. Just any examples of the ways that people have been communicating with data. So we'll get spreadsheets and PowerPoint decks and you name it. And that gives us such interesting insight into where is that team along the journey we've talked about, but also, you know, what are they struggling with or what challenges are they facing and how can we use their work to illustrate and apply uh, some of the core lessons that we teach, uh, because that really brings it home for folks where not only can you do this in theory or with this you know, canned perfect example, no, you can do it with your daily stuff. And mm. these little things can have such massive impact. And so we get to see data from all sorts of different organizations, different industries, and it's fantastic insight into how a company communicates in general, how to communicate with data specifically. And we always worry a bit, and I think it's a healthy worry to have, uh, but that, you know, eventually everybody who needs to know this stuff will have heard it and will know mm -hmm. it. But we certainly see from what comes in in terms of examples that no, no, there's still a lot of teaching to do, which is good from the job security standpoint. But we do really want to push the needle forward and try to help make everybody better when it comes to this stuff, because communication will happen more effectively at scale when more people know how to you know, direct somebody's eyes when they're looking at something or how to talk eloquently through their graph and through their message and through their story. Okay. So here's a, here's something that kind of just like popped into my head, right? Um, so I was uh, watching a great video. So I'm, I'm a big geopolitical wonk, right? I love, I, I love okay. just like geopolitics and stuff like that. Okay. And there was this uh, person that was basically talking about a, you know, series of countries to so just keep it apolitical. They were talking about some country, right? And they were talking about the, this country doesn't have the requisite high school population to escape something called the middle income trap. Uh, long story short, it's basically when your labor becomes too expensive to be a cheap exporting country, but your population is not educated enough to become like Japan, um, you know, high income, but high, high tech exports and stuff like that. And they talked about something that was really interesting where they were saying the importance of a, a high school education at the macro level is that people that graduate high school at a macro level have learned how to learn adult subjects. That's the point. In it. Interesting. Yep. And I remember back, in, you know, obviously when I was in school, which we're at 10 years now, <laughs> we're at 10 years next year, my bad. Yeah. And next year, I'll, it'll be my 10 year anniversary from high school. But 
I remember we would always. I'm ask not going to tell you how long it's been <laughs> since I was in high school. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I'm getting those realizations right now. Um, but there was a, you know, we would always be like, oh yeah, but I'm like never going to use calculus in my real life, and you know, I can attest I have not used calculus in like my actual daily life ever. Oh, yeah, but but those well, those subjects teach you how to think, though. Exactly. So my question is to me. These concepts, unlike say like Python or something, which is like a very like you know, I mean, I advocate specific. For Python, yeah, but Python is yeah. super specific, right? Not everyone, does, not everyone needs not a code, but everyone I know who works in corporate needs to like present data in some way, shape, or form. Yes. So, what would be your? Do you have you ever thought about like this kind of being part of the standard American curriculum? Um, Absolutely. What level would you put it at? Undergrad, masters, high school. So, I mean, we we see for sure there has been an increase at the collegiate level. So master's, undergrad of these concepts being taught. I mean, there are several hundred universities around the world that use storytelling with data as a textbook, right? So often as part of either analytical bent sort of roles or within an MBA program or even in broader communications, which is mm -hmm. awesome. I agree though. I think the the sorts of concepts and you know, I have young children. My kids right now, they're nine, seven, and six. And oh, wow. so I love showing them things. And you can see through their eyes and through their descriptions what's intuitive. And I, I've always been fascinated with this idea. For sure, we can teach these things younger. And I think a lot of it does come down to creative problem solving and really being able to take an ambiguous scenario or situation and break it into component pieces, put it back together in a way that makes sense, be able to talk about that with somebody else. It's a lot of logic and diction and kids learn language so young, which is like this really complicated thing, but they learn it through repetition and by being immersed in it. And I really think there are some interesting things that we could do with like super littles but when it comes to kids of, you know, data can be such a visual language. I mean, if we can learn verbal language really young, like think if we actually taught some of this stuff earlier on, I don't know, which is just me like mostly rambling, but yeah, there are some really interesting nuggets there. And we go back and forth, right? Of should I write a children's book? And I've played around with that a bit. I think maybe it will happen at some point, but, or do you take the concepts and do you go, you know, so we've got, okay, professionals and young professionals and university, and you keep going downwards from there. How do you shift this stuff up to teach it at the high school level? Or do you mm. shift it up to teach it at the high school level? You know, and how do you go downwards from there? But really a lot of rambling short story is, yeah, I think there are absolutely ways that we could be teaching more of this much earlier than mm -hmm. is pervasively done today. Well, and I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I love the ram. Like at the end of the day, I had like for anyone that, you know, doesn't know, I, I have a series of questions written on the right side of my monitor. Uh, but, I, you know, we're going on all these tangents and that's kind of where you discover more interesting topics with anyone that you're, you know, asking questions about. So. Um, well, and have you ever thought about just the connection between what you just described and the exploratory part of the analytical process is very yeah. much the same, right? We're going into something, you may have an idea, you maybe have a structure, you might have your questions that you want to try to answer. But as you work with the data, you don't want to be bound by that because mm -hmm. Really interesting things are going to happen when you meander off course. You just have to figure out when do you like rein it back in, right? When you're going down a path where more time is not going to yield any better right. results, and yeah, hone that. Well, and I, I mean, I, I think you know, you and I are even kind of examples of how meandering is kind of um, has yielded great results in certain ways. Like I was uh, before this, I was talking to Cole about how I created a Tableau course uh, for my company, and then I released that on YouTube. And then one day, I just randomly created this YouTube video. It ended up getting 1.7 million views, um, and it, it was it was just a. I just woke up one day and decided to make it. And then the way you've described storytelling with data, it was fairly random. The like you, it was like it was the right scenario, the right situation, the right like all of these things coming together at the right time. Yeah, right. that made it work. Right when I think of because a lot of the originally when I was starting, right there was a little bit of word of mouth, but my blog was really how people came to know me right before the book existed. And you think of like, I mean, cause I started the blog in 2010 and mm -hmm. start a blog today. And that's going to be hard to get the same sort of traction. So timing is, is such an important factor in all of it coming together as well. Right. Right. We, we can call this a uh, life lessons with Cole, um, <laughs> the, the title of the video. No, I love it. Um, so one question I do have, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of seeing this uh, interview taking like a different direction, which I actually really like, of 
how do you kind of start your own like business on the side, right? So the question I would ask you is uh, you were working at Google, right? Um, you work at Google and uh, to kind of illustrate the import, like wh why this is a big deal. I have a, a very close friend. They have a series of health problems, right? But they work at Microsoft and Microsoft, uh, like their health insurance takes care of everything. It's like, like they pay out the wazoo. Like it's really expensive to take care of this person. Um, this is one of the many, and, and then you still get the high salary, you get the stock, you get all these benefits, right? So uh, the reason I say all that, right, is to um, kind of hammer in the point of how big a deal it is to leave a company like this. What would you say compelled you to create storytelling with data? You're leaving this tremendous career at Google for um, storytelling with data. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard decision, right? And there wasn't a single moment for me. But as I reflect back, I, I don't, it would have never happened if I were making a blind leap. Mm -hmm. uh, I tend to be a risk averse person. Uh, I've mentioned banking before, but in banking, I worked in credit risk management, where we're like predicting things to go uh -huh. wrong. And how do you counter against that and protect against it before it happens? And so I am, I'm not a risk seeker by any means. Mm -hmm. I enjoy the stability of things like a regular paycheck and health benefits and all the things that go along with the big stable company that you talk about. Uh, and so in reflecting just back on my own path and when asked to give advice to others, I think if there's any way possible, if, you know, if you have a passion project or you have something that you're thinking, I want to go out on my own with this, that's fantastic. Look for ways to do it in your day job first, right? If you can get flexibility to test things out, try them out, learn what works, learn what doesn't, that puts you in a much smarter position than when you start to think of like, okay, well, maybe these paths do bifurcate at some point. And then what does that look like? And what does it mean I'm giving up? What does it mean I'm gaining? Right? We talked about timing being important before. Timing for me with the decision to leave Google also coincided, and it wasn't coincidence, right, with the birth of my first child. And so that was a point where priorities were shifting massively, right? It wasn't just me working all hours anymore. I was mm -hmm. like, no, there's like a full on other human who is dependent on me, which put just work and life into a whole different prioritization, I think, mm -hmm. than I had had up until that point. And so that causes some reflection, obviously. But for me, it was, you know, hey, I have this thing and it's growing. And what if, you know, what if I don't go back to the stable day job? What if I test this out and, you know, I put a timeline on it between now and the end of the year. Can I, can I be as busy as I want, but not busier than I want to be? Because I have this tiny human now mm -hmm. to uh, take care of as well. You know, can I, I know there's demand out there. Can I meet with it? Uh, you know, are people going to book me? <laughs> because looking back, it was just me for a really long time. And yeah, all the answers to all those questions ended up being yes, but I didn't know that going into it. Right? So right. It sounds like a lovely story when you look backwards at it, but there are so many people who take those sorts of leaps where things go horribly and don't mm -hmm. work out. And so that's what you want to try to protect against. And so any way that you can do that while you've still got some security and support, I'm a big believer in that. And it gives you time to be able to say no to a lot of things. Mm -hmm. so I think that's a, a big thing that can really easily throw people off at the beginning. And especially when you go out on your own, you want to say yes to everything because you never know when the next thing might come up. There's this immense right. uncertainty, especially at first. But if you say yes to every request that comes your way, you're invariably going to end up doing things that are maybe outside of the core of what you mm -hmm. want to be doing or should be doing. And so I didn't realize this at the time, but looking backwards, because of the time in my life with starting a family and starting the business, I had to say no to a ton of things and I was super laser focused and I only did this one thing and I knew mm -hmm. I could control it completely and I knew I could do my best work there. And then that has positive ramifications in terms of if I'm only doing the work that's in the place where I shine the most, now word of mouth is super positive and that brings reinforcement back versus maybe I wouldn't have taught workshops. Maybe I would have taken on random consulting projects and that would have taken mm -hmm. me down a whole different path. And maybe that would have been excellent also. But yeah, I, I like the path that I'm on. I wouldn't have anticipated it because it went from me in my office by myself in San Francisco to we have a team of nine now all over the world, which is crazy. And we do all sorts of stuff to support people. We've got the blog and the podcast and our online community and a growing YouTube channel and the workshops and the books and all of this that works together to help amplify our message. Um, 
yeah, again, that's just me rambling. I don't know where you want to go from here. <laughs> no, no, that's excellent. I'm seeing different titles for the video are like popping in my head as we like go through it. Originally, it was going to be I interview the author of storytelling of my favorite data book. Then it went to uh, <laughs> Life Lessons with Cole. Oh, yeah, now I like that. The title is at, um, how to start a business as a data professional. Um, mm. So it's just a piece though, right? Because I mean, that's not the only way to do things as a data professional for sure. Uh, oh, there's a ton of impact to be had in organizations and helping them communicate and understand data better. You know, because you asked, it's interesting, you asked earlier about, was there a difference when it comes to different sized companies in terms of where they're at in their analytical journey? Was the book the first thing you made with storytelling with data or was it very much like a lot of talks and then you went to the book? No, the very first thing was the blog. Um, okay. And that was predicated by the fact that I, that conference that I talked about, the annual grants managers network conference, uh, that was going to be in March. Mm -hmm. And I, so I knew it was coming. I booked it in like November or whatever the prior year. And I knew that I wanted somewhere to be able to refer those people to. And so okay. in December, leading up to that, I started the blog and I started posting on the blog. Right? The very first post was called Five Simple Tips. Mm -hmm. And then as I started working with organizations and started doing workshops, then I started getting examples that I could use and genericize for confidentiality, but as fodder and makeovers. And, and the blog is really how it, well, mm. my history is how it started, but then the blog and then the book came a few years later. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was after I had said a lot of the words and had worked out different framing and how to put stuff together that was a way to be able to share the lessons more broadly. And then everything else has grown out of that. What are some of the biggest issues you've noticed in the analytics space when you go and you, uh, for lack of a term, when you consult these people, you know, when you go to the yeah. workshop, right? What would you say are some issues that consistently pop up that you think are getting in the way of how analytics are conducted in corporate America? That's a big question. <laughs> uh, it's interesting because I was thinking a different direction when you started that question than maybe when you ended it. Do you know, I think one thing that's been interesting to me to observe over time is how these buzzwords come in and out of corporations, right? Mm. So like dashboard was a buzzword for a while or infographic had mm. its moment. And then there's a period where data science, and I think we're still a little bit maybe in that, we're like data scientist is this new sexy job and companies need to hire data scientists. And it's like, well, data science always existed. It was just called statistics before. It right. nearly as sexy. Um, but I think there's been such an over-indexing on the hard skills when it comes to data science mm -hmm. that the thing that I see that's holding organizations back is being able to communicate effectively. Mm -hmm. And so it's investing in when you've got groups of highly technical people, investing in their development on the communication side, because you might be the best data scientist in the world, right? Going back to your Netflix uh, analogy earlier, but if you can't talk about what you have done and explain that to someone else in a way that makes sense, where they can have that aha moment of understanding and now understand how they can use that new knowledge in their day-to-day -day and in their work and in their decisions, then it doesn't matter how great your technical skills are. So I think the biggest thing holding companies back or the biggest, one of the biggest opportunities is, you know, to either find people who are really good communicators or invest in bringing up the communication ability of the technical folks, or you find these people who naturally have figured out how to do both pieces, uh, wow. which is a crazy, awesome skill set. And I guess for those watching and listening, you know, if you find yourself on one side of that or the other, right, and you're a great communicator, or you have highly technical skills, but lacking on the other, like a great next step would be to flesh out that other piece, because you will become um, incredibly employable at that point, And you'll be able to do more interesting things. Mm -hmm. uh, because when you can do these things, you know, going back again to something that you said before, People come to you and then you become the person who uh, people go to for more and more interesting things. Uh, so I think for those looking to either get into a space or advance their careers, you know, if you don't feel, if you feel any discomfort at the idea of talking through your work right now, take steps to get over that. And the way to do it is to practice, right? If you have a graph, even if you're not going to be talking through it, 
talk through it, right? Talk mm -hmm. through it out loud to yourself in a room. That actually is fantastic, even if you're never going to be presenting and you just want some pointers with how it's designed. Because as you find yourself saying things about or using your hands, those can be great indications of where you might want to put visual emphasis or contrast or put words around things. So one mm. of the things that I'll uh, teach people in different scenarios is if you have a graph you want to communicate, start by saying a sentence about the graph. And now probably take that sentence and put a version of it right there with the graph so that it you know helps the graph speak uh, right. in the way that you want it to. And now given that, where do you want people to look in the graph? And how might you achieve that through how you design the graph? How do you push things to the background and pull that most salient piece or the most salient pieces forward so people can't miss them? I used yeah. that before this idea that you know your your work should speak for itself or the data speaks for itself. I'm like, yeah, I guess you could say that, but it runs the risk of saying something different to every single person unless you, as the designer of that information, take explicit steps to focus people on where you want them to look and what you want them to see. I did some really interesting research with the visual thinking lab at Northwestern University where we measured the impact of decluttering and focusing data communications and found that when you take these steps, when you don't just show the graph that's output from your tool, but rather you take some time with it, you get rid of things that don't need to be there, you direct attention in what remains, you put a takeaway or a story around it, you know, people are more likely to remember those things, they find them to be more credible, uh, more professional, more aesthetically pleasing, right? You, mm -hmm. you can get people's attention and understanding in a totally different way when you think about how you're designing things, not for yourself, but for others. Nice. And kind of to like drive that point home. So I'll uh, put up a screenshot of this on the uh, video as well. Uh, my, the, the kind of like uh, first point that was just a banger in the book for me was there was this Pew Research study that they did where basically like, you, you know, for the sake of Pew Research, I thought it was, I mean, it, it got the point across. It was talking about children with traditional stay-at-home mothers, but Cole over the years talking about that concept of bringing forward what you actually want to show. If you wanted to highlight the importance of the difference between the two, like what's that right now, you, I mean, simple text is such an underrated way to just show people what they need to know immediately. Like I got that from when you said like, you know, say your sentence, just like put yes. it there, you know? Well, and sometimes um, when you say the sentence, you realize that you don't actually need the graph or that the graph yeah. is unnecessarily complicating <laughs> things or making it harder for you to get people to know what you want them to know. Right. You, you want to mentally tax people as little as possible yes. uh, when looking at your graph because every, you know, uh, let, let's, let's pretend your mind is a computer. It really isn't, but let's say it is, right? Every, you know, processing thread that's spent, you know, trying to like understand this graph is one not spent listening to you, not spent yes. understanding the story behind it. What is it actually saying? What are you trying to convince people of? So, yeah, I mean, again, this is the kind of stuff that the book does a really great job about explaining. And like, it's something I never would have considered. I, I definitely would have never considered just using simple text to explain like what I do. And like, you know, now I do. Awesome. It, you know, well, and, and a lot of this stuff, it's practical. None of it is rocket science. These are all like easy things. Mm -hmm. But until somebody says them, we don't think about it. And we we're so into our work and our projects and our data that it's really easy to inadvertently overcomplicate things because it no longer feels complicated to us because we know this stuff so well. But we have to take a different lens to it when you are subsequently wanting to communicate that to another person because they don't live in your head. They don't have mm -hmm. that context know that it's the difference in the bars that they should be looking for. So if you want to be able to direct that as the person who's designing the information, the communication, then there are really practical, strategic ways that you can do that. And then something for the audience to take away from this, right? So it says the book was copyrighted in 2015. So like it, you made it, you released yeah. it around then, right? Okay. Yeah, um, it was published for, in the fall of 2015. Okay. So, you know, 2015, right? What Cole said earlier is uh, about hard skills, technical skills being over-indexed in today's data science world. Uh, is very much something that I would agree with. And I would very much say that my channel very much like contributes to that. It's the easiest thing to communicate to people that they'll listen to. Like, here's Python, learn how to, like, here's my course. Here's how you do it, you know? And and I, I still advocate that you learn all these skills. The great thing about these skills is at the junior level, it's a really easy way to get your foot in the door and like, just like start doing something. But I would also say, I think if you ever want to move up, if you ever want to go past, you know, that really junior level and move on to doing more and more, then that's where stuff like this starts to become really useful. Now, how you differentiate yourself, you know, in, in a world where a certain type of skill is over-indexed, 
you don't want to be zigging when everyone else, or sorry, you don't want to be zigging with everyone else. You want to zag at least a little bit. That way you can differentiate yourself and people have a reason to pay you more than someone else, for example. Yeah, I absolutely agree with all that. And any of this stuff takes practice, right? And actually that's the, I don't know if you've seen this one. The second book is all mm -hmm. about, you know, it's the same structure as the first. It's the same lessons as the first, but all organized into exercises. Some solved, so you get to see insight into my thought process, but then additional ones that are unsolved uh, or that are really devoted on practicing at work in your job with your project, because that is how you get good at this stuff is mm. trying things and learning over time what works and what doesn't and getting efficient at this part of the process. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Okay. So here, here's a, a question. I love asking people this question because the people who give biased answers have the most interesting answers. Do you have opinions on tech stacks for, uh, or let, let me, let me rephrase that. What would be your ideal tech stack? Uh, you're a data scientist. Uh, you need to analyze and present your data. What would you say is your ideal tech stack personally? So for me, this is a hard question because it is so contextually dependent, mm -hmm. uh, both of like who you are, like who, what the scenario is, right? Because, and I'll tell you what sounds idealistic, but was actually maybe not a great approach, uh, which was what I experienced at Google. So at Google, on the people analytics team, you could use whatever you wanted, which sounds awesome. Right. Because, you know, I'd been in banking prior to that where there was like really focused on budgets. And so we didn't even we, didn't, we weren't we weren't using SAS like every other bank would be using SAS. We were using SPSS because it was cheaper. Like, OK, fine, I'll use SPSS. I can learn SQL. We can pull in the data, you know, build some charts in Excel. Right. But then at Google, you could use anything. And so, you know, we have people using everything like MATLAB and Python and mm. SPSS and SAS and which sounds awesome, right? Okay. You know, I can hit the ground running because I can use the tools that I already know, but you can imagine where this breaks down pretty quickly, right? Which is when you have a question about anything or you need to do anything collaboratively, now you've got everybody using different tools and versed in different things. And that can become kind of a mess Or you have the one person who did this really critical thing and they leave and now somebody else has to take that over but it was built in a language they're not like it just it can go wrong in a lot of ways so context around answering that question would be you know if it's if it's you as the person who's trying to decide what tools should i learn what do you want to do what kind of work do you want to be doing or what kind of team are you on today what sort of support can you get because if everybody else is using a certain combination of things go with that because you have the built-in support to be able to pepper with questions or watch over somebody's shoulder mm -hmm. or leverage code that might already exist. Uh, so I think that would be my answer to that question. I don't have a preferred, like, I, I think coding is awesome because it teaches such interesting things about logic and processing and, you know, pick, pick a tool or a suite of tools and get to learn them as best you can so that they don't limit you, but also mm -hmm. don't feel like you have to learn everything. Right. I mean, I'll share also 99% of what we do at storytelling with data. We're making beautiful graphs and communicating effectively is Excel. And it's not Excel because we love it, right? I mean, it's fine. We can mm -hmm. do what we want with it with some brute force, um, but it's because it's so pervasive, right? Mm -hmm. We're not, limiting anybody else right if we go in with something fancy and we're like uh, you know oh but how did you make this like oh we list off all these fancy tools that we use that they don't have access to they don't have a program uh then it's easy for them to say oh well that's great for you but you know we can't do that and what i like to try to reinforce is no everybody can communicate well irrespective of tools. You just have to get to know your tools well enough so that they don't limit you. And you have to think beyond the tool of what do I want this to look like, right? Sketch it out on a blank piece of paper, then figure out, okay, what tool do I have access to or what set of experts or resources can I use to now try to make that picture that I've painted for myself a reality? Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm going to try something a little bit different over here. So if uh, anyone's ever seen a YouTube viewership graph, right, you know, towards the end, it just like crashes when like people are like, okay, the content of the video is over. Right. But that's also where everyone puts in the information to like, where do you find this person next? So to me, it sounds like it would be a disservice to you to do that at the end. So we're not quite at the end yet, but really fascinating stuff coming. So don't tune out right now. Is that exactly. Right? Uh, yes, yes, yes. There's more to this interview. <laughs> but do not, I am not ending it right now, but uh, I feel like this kind of stuff should kind of be somewhere sprinkled in the middle, right? So you get the people that are committed to uh, listening, 
but you also don't have that huge drop off at the end. What are the resources that you have available? Um, you know, obviously there's a book. What else do you have available for like the average uh, person out there? Yeah. So there's the books. Uh, we do a podcast. We have an online community, which is a great place. There are tons of ways to practice. We want a monthly challenge there and we have a whole exercise bank, also exchange feedback. So if you're looking to practice and hone skills, that can be an excellent place. Uh, we also have a premium level of membership there that gives access to office hours and live events and our video library. Uh, we do also have a YouTube channel where we post instructional videos every Thursday. Uh, so check all of that out. Uh, the best place to go to find us is storytellingwithdata.com. And from there, you'll see links to all of the other resources. Sweet, sweet. So I'll link all that stuff over there, uh, including the podcast and the YouTube channel. Uh, make sure to subscribe to their YouTube, YouTube channel. Some great content over there. Sweet. Thank you. So uh, continuing onwards, what would be some advice you get, uh, you would give to uh, three classes of people, right? Uh, an undergrad who is on their way to you know graduating, a uh, graduate student, and someone who is experienced but transitioning into a more data-heavy role? This is a tough one without any context, right? Of All right, so let's see. For the undergrad, I would say be a sponge, right? Learn, it's like take what you know already. That's your basis. Uh, but find out how you can surround yourself with people who are smarter than you or who are interested in different things than you are and ask questions and absorb right because i you know if i think back to that point in my life which is a really long time ago you were talking about high school what 10 years ago so and then i was doing the math like i graduated college 20 years ago but that's okay when you know i think back to that time and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, right? I think very few people do at that point, or even if you do, like then sometimes you get stuck into that when it doesn't turn out to be the right thing. And that's a hard story to retell yourself. So just learning as much as you can about what you enjoy and your own preferences and what other people do and what drives them. Yeah, recognizing that people are driven by different things. Cause I think mm -hmm. for me, at least that was a lesson that came much later. Uh, the graduate student, I, I would say to a grad student, maybe don't go too deep or at least don't go so deep at the expense of breadth mm -hmm. because it, unless you're you know super fascinated in a specific subject or discipline and like that's what you want to do and that's all you ever want to do like that would be the exception probably but i've experienced where people get so deep into something that they can't kind of pull back and then operate in other ways mm -hmm. and any job, right? If you're wanting to get a job at the end of this, I guess another way or position where this advice wouldn't be is if you're going to then go on to teach the thing that you're going to be doing. But any job in any industry, you're going to need to flex multiple different things. So just you know, be aware of going too deep in one thing. Uh, and also if that one thing uh, suddenly isn't important anymore, right? It just, it, that can be limiting. To the experienced person who is looking to make a switch, I think my advice would actually be similar to something that we talked about before when it was the idea of leaving a company, but figure out if it's a risky thing to make a switch, figure out if there are ways to get insight into what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis before you make the jump. Because I think a lot of times, you know, we'll be in something, we'll be doing well at it maybe the grass looks greener over here. And you're like, well, but what if? And if you could test out that thing on the other side, it will likely make you appreciate aspects of what you're doing currently that maybe were underappreciated before. So if there are ways to moonlight, we used to have opportunities for that at Google where you know there was, oh, a god awful part of my time that I moonlighted as an HR generalist. <laughs> that was not a good fit for me, uh, but was eye-opening and made me really happy when I got back to the analytics side. That's a great job for the right person. I was not the right person for that. But I think every experience that we have right along any of these points of you know, time, I think reflecting on what do you do that you enjoy doing? What do you, what parts of your work or your job or your life are you not, do not bring you joy? And how do you try to orient yourself so that you're doing more of the things that are joyful and less of those other things? And you'll never be able to eliminate the other things because any job is, you know, I mean, 
hopefully mostly good, but there'll always be some stuff that goes with that. That's not your ideal. But so self-reflection to figure out then how do you, how do you navigate through the world? And really, yeah, if you can carve out a space for yourself where you're doing the things that you like to do, that is when you will shine. And that's when you get to then do more of the things that you want to do. So just being conscious of when you are experiencing that and not doing things because you think you should. Nice. One of my last questions for you would be, uh, so you, you have an MBA, right? I do. What would you say is the benefit of having an MBA as a data professional? And, uh, you know, while you're thinking about that, I'll uh, kind of uh, front run some context over here. So there's a NYU Stern professor I love to follow called Scott Galloway. So he's like all over the internet. He does all these like really great videos on anything from uh, marketing to he has like these business analytics things. He has a lot of theories. He has interesting book called post corona which kind of talks about how like uh the uh, unnamed virus will be uh because youtube demonetizes videos like that so the unnamed virus will uh, change the way the world works fundamentally and one of the things he talks about that i find very interesting is the concept of uh, he, he's like how do you become successful in life right like a uh, uh, monetarily he's like you know there's many ways to become successful but monetarily how do you become successful get good at two things that don't typically go together uh, mm -hmm. so, you know, for example, um, have a really great sense of the fashion industry and be amazing at data and analytics. There, the, uh, there are many companies out there where analytics is just not a part of the space that they normally work in, uh, supply chain and technology. Uh, people would be very surprised at how low tech supply chains actually are. If you want to manufacture something in China, you fax the dude, uh, or the person on, you know, in the factory and then you get a fax back, you know, it's not even over email all the time. And that's kind of where Alibaba really stepped in. So when I look at kind of your history, I see this dichotomy of like, oh, a mathematician yeah. who also like made this book on the communication of yeah. data. So I kind of see that with an MBA as well, but uh, I'll, I'll let you fill in the context over there. So one, I think that's an excellent piece of advice, right? Of go, go relatively deep into things that are fully unrelated to each other, because you're right. The combination of those things becomes useful in different ways, like probably always. Mm -hmm. uh, I think when it comes to why as a data person, you might want to consider an NBA is a lot of it comes down to the language that you learn through that, right? You get a little bit of glimpse, right? Because MBA is really meant to be an overview of business and different mm -hmm. parts of how a business runs. And so getting the language, uh, starting to understand what people who are focused on these different functions are going to be driven by. What are they being measured by? What, is, what in, incents them to do things or act in the way they do will help you then when you come back to your data to know how to interact with them or how to interact with people on their team, when and how to bring data into the picture. I think it also helps build the recognition that data is just one piece of the decision-making process, right? Particularly as you get up higher levels of the organization, like there's gut that happens or, you know, politicking that happens or all these other things that play into how things get done. And so you don't want to go in as the analyst naively thinking that the data solves the problem, right? The data never solves the problem. The data might direct things in one way or another, but at the end of that, it's still people deciding things. Mm -hmm. And the more that you can get an understanding of what motivations are going to be and why, and, you know, start to project that, but then also understand how that plays into your work, you know, when you're analyzing data, when you're communicating data, it's another thing that'll help make you more nuanced then in how you navigate some of that stuff. Nice. No, that's awesome. As a follow-up to that, not a specific age or anything, but is there kind of like a uh, kind of like level of life experience that you'd say it makes sense for you to get an MBA right now? Because the general advice I've heard is you generally don't want to get one right after undergrad. You want to get some experience. Yeah, um, that's fair. The I yeah I do think going straight through from undergrad to MBA is maybe not the ideal uh, mm -hmm. because you'll get the most out of it after you've felt some pain of the real world and after you've mm. seen some real things. Uh, and actually I can remember, I think it was Elizabeth on our team who she was teaching data visualization and communication, some of this stuff uh, to, it, it was like an MBA type program where, but it was straight through where mm -hmm. yeah, they got straight from undergrad and the lessons didn't hit home in the way that she expected when she realized it was because they didn't have the real world experience yet. They didn't believe that it was that, like that the data was that 
imperfect and mm -hmm. that uh, there were other all these other nuances that played into it, right? Hadn't yet observed how decisions are made at an organization. Mm -hmm. I think that is useful context to have as you are going into or through an MBA program because it helps you have a different lens and appreciation and know when to pay more attention, I think, to some of the, the stuff as you do. So actually, my MBA program, so it was at University of Washington, uh, just up the street from you, I was working full time, right? I was in my banking job. I, it was an evening program. And so then right. that was awesome, because I was in the same cohort with the same, you know, 50 people for the entire three years. And the stories we would share uh, as we were learning of like the real life things, right? We, we learned through a lot of case studies in the program, but then it was like, we brought our own set of case studies mm -hmm. to everything because of the experience that everybody had. So I definitely think having experience before going in uh, is a good thing, but also be really thoughtful and reflective of what you want to get out of it. Uh, I would say, don't get an MBA because you think it's the thing you have to do to get to the next step in your career. You know, do it because you've got a specific motivating reason because you'll get more out of it when you do. And I think that's great advice in general. So for anyone not aware, I, I do this live stream 8 a.m. Pacific time every Thursday where I answer questions that people might have, right? And there's all kinds of uh, questions I get, but usually people are asking for uh, not a roadmap, but a GPS to get a job in uh, analytics, right? And what's the difference between a roadmap and a GPS? Well, a roadmap outlines all the different routes to get somewhere. And then you have to use your own knowledge. Okay, like I can drive this fast. My car is this big. I can do X, Y, Z. This makes the most path for me, right? There's a, it, it, it eliminates, it helps you, it helps you make a better decision. A GPS, you turn your brain off, you just follow the instructions. And I don't think anyone can really give you a GPS to life. Uh, uh, and it's something I really, but even if they did, you wouldn't want that, right? Because right. there's something about the spirit of it that gets lost mm -hmm. where even if that was the path that worked for you and like, it just, yeah, that. Well, and, and I would even say that, I mean, the world is changing so fast these days that like even advice from, I mean, I'm 27 and I find some of the advice I give people who are just graduating, which five years difference uh, from, from their undergrad. Uh, doesn't necessarily apply exactly anymore, right? Like the the world is uh, so rapidly changing. But yeah, you, you know, I, I, I think that the way you kind of like may like talked about, like make sure you have a reason to learn this thing before you do. Yeah. I would I would give that advice to anyone that watches my channel as well. People ask like, what are all the technical skills I need to learn? Well, I, I have the roadmap, but a lot of that's also dependent on like, if you already have a job, what can you apply immediately, right? I usually say learn SQL before Python, but maybe Python makes more sense for you to learn first. So, you know, you got to make these... Uh, calls on your own. All right. So one last question for you. Yeah. So you have obviously, you know, had a very successful career. You do, you know, you manage this, uh, this, uh, concept that's quite amorphous, right? Like it's not like a, a W2 job where you're given a task and then, you know, you accomplish a task and like, sure, there's some like, you know, creativity in there, but long story short, companies give you, they hire you for something and you, you do that thing. Right. Uh, writing a book is a lot more, you know, you got to stay focused. Uh, you have to know, you, you have to forge your own like kind of story and everything, right? How do yep. you stay organized and motivated with, you know, when, when there's not a boss telling you what to do? Yeah. I mean, I think people, I mean, I certainly am very intrinsically self-motivated, right? When I have a vision, I have something I want to accomplish. I tend to be pretty fierce in terms of, breaking that down to, in, to component pieces, putting a timeline on it. Like I have very high expectations of what myself, of myself and what I'm going to achieve. And I think have hired pretty strong type A personalities as well. Uh, I think the first thing that comes to my mind in answer to that question is, well, one, just the vision behind all of this, right? Which is that I think we're in a position where we can really inspire positive change in the world through the way that people communicate with data specifically and communicate in general. And that is the underlying thing that is the driving force behind everything we do. Mm. Right? So we're always coming back to, you know, the podcast, does it help us at this? Well, yeah, it does. Can help people can listen, you know, as they're commuting or as they're exercising and all these different ways. And so how do we put lots of different ways out there that people can access our content and learn in ways that's going to work for them and ultimately make people more effective and more engaged and better at what they do. But I think on the more, so it's the more like strategic visionary side of the response, the more 
practical, tactical side of it is we also follow religiously a quarterly OKR setting process, objective mm -hmm. and key results. Uh, it's a process that I learned at Google. My husband's also from Google, so we kind of hold each other accountable to it in ways that's helpful. Uh, I set them at the team level. I have them for myself individually. Everybody on the team has them individually. Actually, we have a whole podcast on it called Goals Like Google, which you can find on the okay. Storytelling with Data podcast. But it's the process both of going into the quarter of, and this is not your day-to-day -day work, right? These are the big, meaty, strategic things you want to accomplish of what's the objective? What are you trying to impact? And then what are the key results, the really specific measurable things that if you go through at the end of the quarter and you say, yeah, I did that, I did that, I did that, then you can say, yes, this was successful. And part of it is the goal setting process, but then the other part is the reflection that happens then at the end of each quarter, looking back, grading each key result and using that as a point of assessment of given that, like, you know, how did things go? Did we deprioritize things? And just the, the thought process and the conversation that that drives, I truly believe that that is a large reason that we've been as successful as we have over time is because we're not just doing the day-to-day -day and getting sucked into that. We, we do that, but then we've always got these other bigger things that we're working towards, which keeps us engaged, keeps us excited, uh, hopefully keeps others engaged, and we get to continue to grow and impact and execute our vision in all these different ways. So. Awesome. Well, this has been a lot of fun for me. Do you have any final notes you want to leave off with or are we, you know? Yes. The answer to that question is always yes. So uh, I think for folks listening, if you're thinking, particularly if you're thinking of making some of these changes that we've talked about, but just in, in your normal work, considering some of the things that we've talked about today on the communication uh, and how important that piece of the puzzle is when it comes to everything you want to do. So the more comfortable you can get talking about yourself, talking about your work, you know, speaking eloquently and effectively with people, these are skills that are going to serve you in so many ways in your job, in your life. So look for opportunities to talk and look for opportunities to talk to other people. Cause I feel like to some extent we lost that ability or took a step back words uh, over the past couple of years of the, uh, what was it? The unnamed virus. So look for opportunities to connect with people and practice talking and practice communicating because nobody's an expert, right? We can always learn from every experience and keep getting more nuanced with how we communicate in general and how we communicate with data specifically. Perfect. That's uh, th th that was an amazing ending. Thank you guys so much for your time and I hope you guys have a great day.